1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. Coming to you from the new Forgotten TV studio, exploring TV memories of the 70s and 80s, from the fondly remembered to the obscure, short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. My listeners, I am your podcast host, Chris Cooling. The knowledge that I have obtained of television, both factual and historic, I have given to you fully over the last year. These are important matters to be sure, but have only scratched the surface of what I would like to explore. There are still topics to be examined, as well as many TV shows, pilots, and TV movies left to consider, and it is time for us to do so. Here in this podcast studio of solitude, we will explore these topics together, for this is Forgotten TV. Come with me now as we break through the bonds of earthly confinement, traveling through time and space. As we pass through the flaming turmoil which is the edge of the time barrier, we will examine the human concept of time travel as it is understood and interpreted in literary fiction, as well as television and film representations of this idea. So, the power module is in place. The machine is ready. System sequenced, positive, time compression interlock complete, time backward mode, time progression indicated. All right. The first literary instance of what we understand is time travel, where a character by some means is transported to another time, is possibly in the Mahabharata, the ancient Indian Sanskrit epic thought to have been composed in the 4th century BCE. Among several accounts of time dilation found in it, a king named Revata spends a day with the god Brahma, and when he is returned to earth, he learns that he has traveled several hundred years into the future. In 1781, the play Anno 7603 by Johann Hermann Wessel has characters traveling to the year 7603 A.D., the people find themselves in a society where gender roles are reversed, and only women are allowed to fight in the military. 1881's The Clock That Went Backward was the first known instance of a device enabling time travel. In fact, around a dozen literary works that we know of predate H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, one even written by Wells himself. 
But it was that 1895 novella that has inspired hundreds of literary works as well as film and television adaptations, and Wells that is credited with coining the term time machine. What we take for granted now as a convention of fantastic storytelling in movies and TV is largely a product of this work. In this story, an unnamed time traveler, an English scientist and gentleman inventor, has built a machine for the purpose of propelling the pilot forward or backward through time. He travels to the year 802,701 and discovers the diminutive, peaceful vegetarians, the Eloi, including the young girl, Weena. The Eloi are docile and apathetic and live a life of apparent leisure. The time traveler also discovers the Morlocks, weird, ape-like underground dwellers that run the machinery that make the above-ground life possible. The Morlocks are not vegetarians. This story was adapted into a 1948 audio drama for the CBS radio program Escape. Complete recordings of this still exist and are easily found. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Escape with us now to the year 100,080 and a world where beauty and terror live side by side as H.G. Wells describes it in his immortal story, The Time Machine. The first televised depiction of time travel that I could find was a 1949 BBC live teleplay of The Time Machine. Sadly, no film or audio recordings are known to exist of this broadcast, just a few still pictures. Incredibly, over 100,000 UK households had a television by 1949, and while I could not find estimated viewership for this event, you have to think a substantial number of these households were tuned in to this historic broadcast. The Time Machine was next seen in the famous 1960 George Pal film from MGM with Rod Taylor, Yvette Mimieu, and Alan Young. This now classic film enjoyed many TV broadcasts through the decades. But before theatergoers enjoyed this 1960 film, time travel was being depicted on the small screen. Somewhere in a remote, uncharted region of a planet called Earth, stands the laboratory of Captain Zero. In this secret location, known only to a few in the outside world, Captain Zero and his associates experiment in time and space to learn from the past, to plan for the future. In 1951, California viewers in San Francisco and Los Angeles could watch the adventures of Captain Zero. For 77 episodes, Captain Zero and his teenage assistant, Jet, would use their time machine to view a period in time and inevitably see that some event was unfolding contrary to history. Captain Zero would then send Jet back in time to intervene and ensure that history played out as originally recorded. Elements of this early show were later used in the time travel series Voyagers and Quantum Leap. In fact, the opening credits of Captain Zero were shown on the series finale of Quantum Leap. In 1959, Peabody's Improbable History segments started appearing on Rocky and his friends on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. 
In these cartoons, Mr. Peabody and his boy Sherman would use the Wayback Machine to visit important events in human history. These cartoons primed the imaginations of children throughout the 60s. In the early 60s, several episodes of The Twilight Zone dealt with time travel. Usually by unexplained means, a character would find himself in another time and face some type of conundrum as a result. Three episodes used a time machine as a plot device. Season 1's Execution finds Russell Johnson as a 20th century scientist. Testing out his time machine, he accidentally retrieves a 19th century murderer, saving him from the hangman's noose. Season 3's Once Upon a Time features Buster Keaton donning a time helmet and taking a trip from the silent era of 1890 to modern-day 1962. And Season 4's No Time Like the Past has a scientist attempting to use a time machine to prevent tragedies, both in world history and in his own past. Meanwhile, back in the UK, in 1963, viewers were being introduced to a certain doctor, a time lord, time traveling in what appeared to be a blue British police box. Doctor Who, with his TARDIS and sonic screwdriver, would end up entertaining fans for decades with his time travel adventures. On US TV, in 1966, Irwin Allen, who was enjoying success with primetime sci-fi hits Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, then running on primetime network TV, brought us The Time Tunnel. Deep in an underground labyrinth is a fantastic invention which cost billions of dollars, The Time Tunnel. The Time Tunnel, in color on ABC. Set in 1968, two scientists using a gigantic time machine in an underground desert military installation would travel to a new time and place each week as the crew back home tried to help them and return them to their own time. The home base time tunnel crew could sometimes speak to them and send supplies, but for some reason were not ever able to return them to 1968. This general idea was reused 20 years later in the series Quantum Leap. This series was the most expensive TV show ever produced up to that time. However, only the time tunnel control room set needed construction. Because the main characters were in a new period setting each week, the producers were able to reuse existing sets, props, and costumes from other productions. You can see props reused from Batman, Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, as well as numerous films. The use of stock footage as well as footage directly lifted from other films also added production value to the show. For example, see how the second episode, One Way to the Moon, uses footage from 1950's Destination Moon. The series was canceled by ABC after a full season, and the story never resolved. The reason? If there was a conclusion, the studio feared people would not tune in to watch the syndicated reruns. Doug and Tony are still out there somewhere, traveling through time. Also in the late 60s, the Starship Enterprise was used as a time machine on three occasions on the original series of Star Trek. A time machine made an appearance on a 1973 episode of Love American Style, in which a love-struck assistant uses his employer's time machine to try to get a girl to like him. And, of course, we know Fi and Fum traveled through time on Saturday mornings in 1975 on The Lost Saucer. But on Friday, 
March 19, 1976, a TV movie aired on ABC after Donnie and Marie that featured time travel as a main plot device. Called Time Travelers, the movie starred Sam Groom, Tom Halleck, and Richard Basehart. And Patrick Culleton, Wiley from Starman, shows up in a supporting role. Not to be confused with The Time Travelers, the 1964 theatrical film, or Time Travelers, the 1966 Japanese TV movie. The script was written by Jackson Gillis, and the opening credits tell us this was based on a story by Rod Serling. We'll revisit that later. It was directed by Alexander Singer, who went on to direct numerous episodes of Lou Grant, Knott's Landing, Cagney and Lacey, as well as 22 episodes of various Star Trek series. The music was by Morton Stevens, composer of many TV movies, as well as the iconic trumpet and drums theme to Hawaii Five-O. This TV movie was produced by Irwin Allen and was intended to be a pilot to interest the network in rebooting the time tunnel. ABC did not bite on the series, but did air it as a movie of the week. ABC Tonight, a world premiere motion picture. The ABC Friday Night Movie. Act One. The movie opens during Mardi Gras in New Orleans as a young girl in a marching band is the latest victim to fall sick to a deadly virus named XB a virus with a 40% mortality rate. Dr. Clinton Earnshaw, Clint, has been following the outbreak, but has thus far only been able to diagnose it. A visitor from Washington shows up to talk to Clint, Jeff Adams. Dr. Earnshaw and Mr. Adams meet. This is Dr. Clinton Earnshaw, the pathologist who first recognizes symptoms of our epidemic. Oh, yes, I know all about Dr. Earnshaw. Graduated from medical school at 23. I think we can skip that. Hello, Dr. Adams. <laughs> I'm no doctor. You just call me Jeff. I barely got an M.A. This may come as a surprise to you, Mr. Adams, but we told ATW our biggest need was for bacteriologists and virologists. Yeah, well, I had an athletic scholarship once at this little cow college, if you can fathom that. Clint is ushered to a private jet to transport him to the facility of Dr. Amos Cummings and his colleague, Dr. Helen Sanders, who have been experimenting with time travel. Adams is being sneaky on the plane ride over and does not reveal the purpose of their trip. He does, however, remind him of the discovery over a century earlier of a virus with similar characteristics to XB then referred to as Woods Fever, by its discoverer, Dr. Joshua P. Henderson. The problem is that all of the notes and any results from Henderson's research and treatment would have been burned up in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Clint quickly learns they intend to send him and Jeff back to 1871 Chicago to determine how Dr. Henderson cured his patients of XB. The pair are outfitted with period clothing and gear with a couple of pieces of modern equipment too, a miniaturized, transistorized centrifuge and microscope. 
Clint muses, by traveling back in time, we could correct our mistakes. But Dr. Cummings quickly shoots down that notion. No. That's the one thing you can't do. You can't change history. The two enter a chamber through an automatic door and descend a staircase into a fog-filled room. Act 2. They arrive in 1871 Chicago, all right, but are placed right in the city instead of the intended rural home of Dr. Henderson four days before the fire. They discover they arrive with 29 hours to accomplish their mission before the city goes up in flames. They quickly make their way to the hospital to find Dr. Henderson and meet his niece, Jane. They pose as doctors who have come from Washington, D.C. to help with the outbreak of Woods fever. Henderson surprises them by saying he does not know why his patients are surviving. He is only providing palliative care, washed down with his homemade elderberry wine. Act 3. Using the modern equipment, a microscope and a centrifuge, they perform their own tests on the patients, but remain baffled as to how Henderson cured them. During this day of research, Dr. Earnshaw develops feelings for Jane, and these feelings are returned. The pair decide the teetotaling sailor Sharky, who Dr. Henderson just released as being cured, may have the answer. Jeff chases after them to get a sample of his blood to compare against the other patients. But a scuffle ensues, and he is caught in the act of getting a blood sample from the unconscious Sharky by a police officer. Act 4. Jeff flees the beat cop and is forced to hide out. Meanwhile, Clint finds he has napped all afternoon and isn't feeling well. Yes, he himself has come down with XB. Shortly after, Mrs. O'Leary's barn catches fire and time is running out for the two to return to the site of arrival before the city burns down. Returning to the hospital, a sick Clint quickly examines the blood sample, finding Sharky still had XB after all, making the sample of no use. Jeff starts raiding Dr. Henderson's office to take all his records back to the future, but is caught in the act. Act 5. As the fire nears the hospital, Clint has discovered a substance in Dr. Henderson's homemade elderberry wine has to be the answer they were looking for. The pair leave to look for the holder of the last bottle of the wine while time is running out. Dr. Henderson and Jane evacuate the hospital, and Clint decides he is going to break one of the rules of time travel and stay behind with Jane. What are you talking about? You have the answer to XP right there. They'll know what to do with it back home. I'm going to stay here, Jeff. I'm going to learn how to paint a picture, and I'm going to learn how to shoe a horse. What? I can do more good here, Jeff. I've never had anybody who needs me the way she does. She's a ghost out of the past. And you're nothing but a specter from the future. Before they realize it, though, Henderson and Jane re-enter the burning hospital to save a girl left behind, and they perish. We have to leave. I can't. I love her. But she's already dead. Let go you, of me. You haven't even been born yet. Let go of me. Clint, you can't change what's already happened. You don't know what happened. It's 105 years ago. Jeff and a delirious Clint race across the city to the stairs of the departure point and are transported. 
Act 6. Clint awakens in a modern hospital room to find out the cure was developed from the wine they brought back. Later, Jeff and Clint visit a cemetery and find Jane's headstone. October 9th. That same night. She did die that same night. You couldn't have saved her, Clint. No. I guess I just fell in love with history, that's all. The movie fades out, contrasting stock footage of the Chicago fire to the modern Chicago skyline. Behind the Scenes this was a really interesting little TV movie I remember watching with my family when I was eight years old. I always thought it was cool how they descended downstairs into the mists of time. This was shown on TV several times in the 70s. I'm pretty sure it was syndicated and you would catch it on Saturday afternoon on the UHF stations. But as time went on, I forgot what this was called for decades until I finally found it on YouTube last year. The whole story seems rushed when viewed now, but remember, this was a 75-minute TV pilot. I think it would have benefited from a longer runtime to flesh out some of the story elements. For example, I would have liked to have had more explanation on the mechanics of this TV movie's interpretation of time travel, and how the arrival and departure points worked, but maybe that's asking a lot of a mid-70s TV pilot. Let's first talk about the authorship of the original story screenwriter Jackson Gillis based this on. The credits say, story by Rod Serling, but this evidently was a matter for some litigation. The following post from Seabird 1 from February 2010 on IMDb states, This film was actually based on a story written by my father, author Charles W. Bird, not Rod Serling. My father wrote the story in the late 1950s, and without his knowledge, it ended up on ABC in 1976. Immediately upon seeing the film, my father knew it was actually based on his original story. After some time and litigation, a financial settlement was reached between ABC, Irwin Allen, and others, and my father was given the rights to claim it as his work. Unfortunately, the film was never recut to include him as the creator of the story. In retrospect, these events probably doomed the pilot from becoming a series. It's a shame my father was not given his due in creating this interesting and entertaining story. Charles W. Byrd was a prolific writer, having authored more than 500 articles and 10 books. He served as a Methodist minister and had a number of published religious-based works in addition to his secular books. His book, A Time to Live, was the original story Time Travelers was based on, as well as evidently the inspiration for the Time Tunnel series. What I couldn't find out was why the producers credited Rod Serling in the first place. 
Perhaps it's one of those tidbits of information that will never publicly be known due to the settlement. Charles W. Byrd died in 2003 at age 72. The storyline as adapted has a romantic subplot that was somewhat similar to the Edith Keeler story element on The City on the Edge of Forever, a Star Trek original series episode. In that 1967 episode, Kirk and Spock have to travel back in time to the 30s to correct time interference done by a drugged, feverish McCoy. Kirk falls in love with Edith Keeler in the 1930s, but discovers he has to allow her to die to restore the correct timeline. Kirk must restrain McCoy from saving her at the climax of the episode. In Time Travelers, Clint, not thinking clearly, falls in love with Jane and wants to stay in 1871 to live out his life with her. Jeff then has to restrain a feverish Clint as Jane goes back into the burning hospital to meet her doom. If he had saved her, it would have changed history in unforeseeable ways. And we were told by Dr. Cummings, changing history was one thing they couldn't do. Whether this was presented as a rule to follow or as a time travel axiom is not clear. Time Travelers also leaves out the mythical Mrs. O'Leary's cow element. While the O'Leary's barn does catch fire in the movie, the O'Leary's were in bed when the barn was on fire, not out milking the cows. The story of Mrs. O'Leary milking her cow, which kicked over a lantern, starting a fire that she didn't put out, was made up by a reporter and easily believed, as Irish immigrants made for easy scapegoats. The O'Leary's always maintained that they were asleep in bed when the fire started, and it was presented this way in the movie. Sam Groom later starred on Otherworld, considered on Forgotten TV Episode 10. He was also a regular on the time tunnel as the control room technician, Jerry. The time travel computers and control panels at the mansion were previously used in the time tunnel. The outdoor set of 1871 Chicago was actually the circa 1890 New York street set built for 1969's Hello, Dolly! Much of the long-shot footage of the Chicago fire is actually tinted stock footage from 1938's In Old Chicago. Time Travelers was shown on the Sci-Fi Channel several times in the 90s. Incredibly, Time Travelers is available on DVD as an extra feature in the Time Tunnel UK DVD release, as well as in the now out-of-print Volume 2 US DVD release. Forgotten TV will return after these messages. The Time Machine. Now from MGM comes the picture that crashes the time barrier, that takes you on an exciting romantic journey into the future. 800,000 years into the future that shows you the shape of things to come. The Time Machine. George Pal's production of H.G. Wells' fabulous novel, The Time Machine. You are there as the years fly by, faster than the speed of light. The years unfold before you, age after age of endless time. The Time Machine, rocketing across the giant screen in flaming color. See the future before it happens. The Time Machine. Rated G. November 5th, 1877, San Marcos, California. Something is coming. What was that? Something frightening. 
Something appealing. Take off your clothes. Something from 105 years in the future. This is a man. He is not the devil. Time Rider, the adventure of Lyle Swan. A man who found his future in the past. Rated PG. The DeLorean. Gullwing doors rise effortlessly, beckoning you inside. The sleek, stainless steel DeLorean. Beautifully crafted for long life. The DeLorean is one of the most awaited automobiles in automotive history. Drive the DeLorean. Live the dream today. We now stop in 1978. Why? Most people, when asked about movie adaptations of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, know about the 1960 and 2002 versions. Typically left out, though, is 1978's The Time Machine. This was produced by Sun Classics Pictures and aired on NBC November 5, 1978, during Rating Sweeps Week, and presented as a Classics Illustrated on NBC's The Big Event. Viewers had just watched Part 2 of The Gnome Mobile on the wonderful world of Disney, or perhaps they were switching over from ABC if they were watching The Hardy Boys. Let's hear the intro, which tells us our players. In tonight's Classics Illustrated presentation, a young scientist hurtles the barrier of time and finds himself locked in a struggle to prevent the destruction of Earth. In the world of the future, an exciting new version of H.G. Wells' masterpiece, The Time Machine. Starring John Beck as Neil Perry, Priscilla Barnes as Weena, Andrew Duggan as Worthington, Jack Crucian as John Bedford, Rosemary DeCamp as Agnes, and Whit Missile as Branley. Music for this movie was composed by John Kakavas, known at the time for the scores of Airport 1975, Airport 77, as well as the theme from Kojak. Even though this was an update to the original story to modern day, it was intended to be more faithful to the original novella than the 1960 George Pal film. Or at least that's what Wikipedia claims. We'll see. This time, the time traveler was Dr. Neil Perry, a 1970s scientist working for a fictional U.S. defense contractor, the Mega Corporation. Act 1. A Russian satellite is shown in orbit and it develops a malfunction. NORAD is concerned about the uranium on board reaching critical mass on impact when it crashes into Earth. When the impact trajectory is updated to crash into Los Angeles, the decision is made to use an experimental new missile, the X-7B, to try to intercept and destroy it. To accomplish this immediately, NORAD contacts the Mega Corporation to use their guidance computers. The guidance computers don't update the missile trajectory fast enough, at which time our protagonist is introduced, Dr. Neil Perry, with his mustache open collar, and sport jacket, who rides in on his bike and inexplicably gives the techs the correct trajectory using a pocket calculator and resolves the crisis. Later, in an office, Branley and Worthington, Perry's bosses, want to discuss his working on a military weapon project, the antimatter bomb. 
and want to discuss what he has come up with on his personal project the corporation has allowed him to spend $20 million on. A model? He reveals to them something that looks like two triangles with a chair and control panels. A button is pressed and the model lights up and disintegrates into time. Mildly impressed, Branley and Worthington want him to refocus all his efforts on the antimatter bomb on Monday. But the unexpectedly early completion of the power module he'd been waiting on permits Perry to test his time machine over the weekend. Yes, in his lab sits the full model of the time machine. He installs the power module and sits at the controls. We fade to Monday, and everyone is looking for Dr. Perry. He finally staggers into his boss's office, dirty and disheveled, and even the top boss is present, and he is encouraged to tell his story. He first relates of his trip into the past, where he randomly stops in 1692 Salem, Massachusetts, where his time machine, calculator, and ID badge are interpreted as tools of the devil, and he is promptly tied to his time machine and set to burn up on a pile of straw. Act 3 he breaks free and escapes that time, now stopping in 1855 and materializing inside a gold mine. In the midst of the California gold rush, he is shot at by miners and arrested for stealing a gold shipment. Wait, really? Well, I'd done it again. Not only had I managed to stumble into the middle of the gold rush, but to get myself locked up as well. 20th century technology wasn't any help either. My machine was miles away in a mine where it might be found any minute. A paperclip. Of course. A small 20th century miracle that just might work. I was hoping to get quietly out of town unnoticed. Nobody seemed to be paying much attention to me, which was just the way I wanted it. This segment lasts a little longer, and we have Perry evading being recaptured. I'd made it back to the mine. But what I saw below turned my blood cold. The miners were rigging a dynamite detonator, and my machine was still in the mine. No! No! Act 4. Perry makes his way to the time machine and returns to the present. traveled into the past and managed to return. I could hardly wait to call Haverson with the good news. I didn't see how he could drop the project once I'd told him about the test. On his way to the boss's office, Perry has a conversation with a lab technician, which brings up serious environmental concerns over the projects Megacorp has been working on. Perry continues to relate his story to his bosses. Now the time machine was more important than ever. 
It had a purpose and so did I. We were going into the future to prove the world was planting the seeds of its own destruction. Now, 49 minutes into the film, we finally get to the portion adapted from the H.G. Wells story. On his way to the future, he seems to witness several nuclear fireballs and arrives in a desolate, radioactive wasteland. After a bunch of time-lapse footage, we finally arrive at a familiar portion of the story. He gets up and wanders around, and he hears metal doors shut and realizes his time machine has been dragged inside the giant metal doors he's been parked next to. Act 5. Perry is freaking out about the missing time machine and meets the Eloy, including a young woman named Weena, and her brother Ariel, and he is told of the Morlocks. The Eloi appear to be fruitarians and have no knowledge of fire. He is taken to what seems to be a museum, where weapons throughout history are displayed. One of these, a handheld weapon, reads, Death Ray Laser, developed by Neil Perry, Mega Corporation. A narrated history video plays on a screen with plenty of stock footage, including clips from the 1953 War of the Worlds. By the beginning of the 21st century, scientific advancement had produced a test tube baby and a three-day work week. But it had not solved the problems of radioactive contamination and dwindling natural resources. Much of the planet had become unfit for human habitation. In the year 2004, a confrontation occurred in the Eastern Hemisphere. The confrontation, escalated by several terrorist groups, was over the control of a small remaining section of habitable land. What started as a limited war was rapidly spread to a larger confrontation of the world's major powers. Threats and counter-threats were exchanged. spread, countries were forced to take sides, and soon the entire world was locked in conflict. The war was destroying what was left of the habitable world and its population. Panic was everywhere. City after city crumbled in the destruction. The only safe place was underground. Then came the beginning of the end. The United States decided to use its new antimatter bomb. Yes, it seems Perry's new assignment at Mega Corporation will be directly responsible for the world's destruction. Weena later shows Perry that the Eloy's lush area of land was limited and surrounded by wasteland. The Morlocks provide the water to sustain the ecosystem of the limited area. Perry then learns the Morlocks come at night, monthly, and take the oldest from among the Eloy. 
While the Eloi wait for the Morlocks to arrive, Perry reveals to Weena he is from their past. Soon the Morlocks arrive with glowing eyes and green glowing cattle prods that evidently were distinct enough from lightsabers to avoid legal action from Lucasfilm. Act 6. Quickly realizing the Morlocks' weakness of bright light and that their handheld weapons only stun, Perry is determined to descend the tunnel leading to the underworld. I saw something on the tunnel floor. Eloy clothing. How long had it been there? Could it be I was already too late? As I walked forward, I realized why the Morlocks allowed the Eloy water and why they took the elders first. Like cattle, Eloy had become the food source of the Morlocks. After realizing the horrifying truth of the nature of the Morlock-Eloy relationship, Perry comes up with the idea of using plastic explosives from the Museum of War to seal the entrances. Perry and a few of the male Eloy go with him on this mission. They successfully seal one of the entrances, and only Perry and Ariel remain in the Morlock tunnels. Act 7. The pair manage to seal the second entrance to the tunnel, and Ariel makes it out. Perry remains behind to set the final charge to seal the giant metal doors. He makes it to the time machine, narrowly escaping the final bomb. We fade back to the present, with Perry finishing his story to his three bosses. Are they disbelieving? Incredulous? No, they are already trying to figure out how to further their corporate and national interests using the time machine. Dr. Perry again leaves in his time machine without the permission of his superiors. We fade to two weeks later. Branley and Agnes, Perry's secretary, are discussing Perry's potential to help the Eloy create a world based on the good things man has achieved. After all, time is on his side. Back in the distant future, Perry and Weena reunite in an evidently Morlock-free world, and the book closes on our movie, and it was bedtime because I had school the next morning. Behind the Scenes This is a version of the time machine that is rarely seen. Many people express surprise at its existence. But I absolutely remember watching it that Sunday night, and I think we rented it once in the 80s on VHS. But like time travelers, I largely forgot about it until I saw it in 2012 on Christopher Mills' Space 1970 blog. The screenwriter, Wallace C. Bennett, who adapted the Wells novel, only worked on a handful of productions, but among them was a story-by credit for 1984's The Philadelphia Experiment, another time travel movie. Whit Bissell, who played Branley, appeared in the 1960 George Pal film as well as The Time Tunnel. The time machine itself was kind of cool in a retro 70s disco sort of way. I think you either like it or hate it, and except for the seat, which was clearly a regular chair placed in the middle, it was serviceable and not terrible for a TV movie budget. It nowhere nearly comes close to the magnificence and Victorian beauty of the 1960 version. 
Was this more faithful to Wells' original story than the 1960 film? The Traveler never goes to the past in that story, so the 20 minutes this film spends on his trip to the past, which were ultimately pointless to the story, were complete add-ons, existing only to save on the budget, not to mention the total head-scratcher opening segment. Even though this was part of a TV movie series called Classics Illustrated, which was based on the comics line that started in 1941 and ran for three decades and was known for faithful comic adaptations of classic novels. The real Wells story doesn't even begin until 49 minutes into the movie. And then, what was filmed was not really any closer to the original story than the 1960 film. The mankind is on his way to destruction message was not exactly subtle, and this adaptation left out the elegant plot points and details of the 1960 film in favor of the wasted time spent traveling to the past. Like the 1960 film, Weena is a love interest, and we are given a happy ending. Neither element is present in the original story. Was this hastily produced? Perhaps. I noticed several continuity errors, such as the missile being referred to as both the X-7B and the X-B-7 by different characters, and was Andrew Duggan playing Washington or Worthington? Also, the convention of the time machine moving only through time was not maintained. First he travels to a meadow in Salem, then he's underground in a gold mine in California, then back at his lab, which did not seem to be on the ground floor to begin with. Even after the time machine is moved, it's back there in the lab. The lack of the ability to being able to travel to another location was key in Wells' story as well as the 1960 film. Here, this isn't even given a line of dialogue. Also, the power module's completion was important to the story, but how the time machine was powered was never explained. I love how the big boss is presented with something that has nearly unlimited applications and the boss wants to know what the practical applications are. The Eloy are far more talkative and intelligent in this version, and it was interesting Perry didn't grab the death ray, which would have seemed to be the far easier choice to battle the Morlocks with. Instead, plastic explosives were used to blow up the tunnel entrances, as well as some of the Morlocks' control panels, it seemed. What that would mean for the Eloy's paradise and the water flow from underground was not dealt with. Perhaps the screenwriter was making a point about Perry not wanting to use his terrible inventions. But the outcome for the Morlocks would be worse. They would eventually be forced to eat each other and perish. Something that also annoyed me about time travel stories in general is the casual attitude and lack of preparation usually shown by the person doing the time travel. I know that in the Wells adaptations, the matches are a plot point in the story from 1895, but these inventors get on their time machines without a flashlight, a bottle of water, a sandwich. You might get peckish on your trip through eternity. During the tour of the War Museum, an odd-looking small car with very sharp angles is shown, almost resembling the smart car of today. This was a 1974 city car. This was a minimalist electric car sold by Sebring Vanguard in Florida, which produced these cars from 1974 to 1977. The time travel effect used as the time machine accelerates through time is very similar to what later would be used on Voyagers, and what was used to create the old ABC Movie of the Week animations. It was called the slit-scan technique, 
where colored plastic films were photographed behind a slit, with the camera moving either toward or away from the slit, thus creating these flat patterns that appear to be approaching from infinity, a really cool effect completely accomplished in camera through mechanical means. This is a technique pioneered by Douglas Trumbull and used in the motion picture 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. Now, of course, this would be done with CGI, but once you recognize slit-scan animation, you'll see it in a lot of older movies and TV shows. The Time Machine 1978 TV movie was released on VHS via VCI home video in the early 80s and is an extremely rare find these days, but never to DVD or any digital format. There are, however, currently three versions viewable on YouTube. Two appear to be video captures of the VHS release, one is a video capture of likely a 16mm film print, and is split into ten parts. This was the last adaptation of The Time Machine until the 2002 Simon Wells film. Sort of. In 1979, Nicholas Meyer and Warner Brothers and Orion Pictures brought Time After Time to theaters. In this film, H.G. Wells is presented as the actual inventor of the time machine, and among his incredulous group of dinner-party friends turns out to be none other than Jack the Ripper, who Wells has to chase to modern-day San Francisco. Malcolm McDowell, Mary Steenburgen, and David Warner star. It's a really clever take on the time machine story, and I recommend that you seek it out. It's easily found on DVD or on Amazon Video. Forgotten TV will return after these messages. My name is H.G. Wells. I came here in a time machine of my own construction. I'm pursuing Jack the Ripper, who escaped into the future in my machine. A brilliant scientist, a criminal genius, a delightful romance, and a daring chase across time. The most exciting, mysterious, and challenging dimension of all. Time after time, rated PG. It'll be your time soon. Watch for it at a theater near you. One day, it's 1943. The next, it's 1984. Somehow, we got moved in time. Good Lord, there it is. He has fallen through time, but time is running out. Now, we can't stop it, but I believe that you can. Michael Paré, Nancy Allen. Good luck, Sailor. Go! The Philadelphia Experiment, rated PG. Okay, Jonathan, we're sending you back in time. Before television, radio, even before soft drinks. Careful, anything you do could change history. Mom's the word. Activate time travel mode to the year 1885. He's there. I was my Pepsi. <laughs> it's, oh no, he took it. Relax, Smith. What could 12 ounces of Pepsi possibly change? Yeah, what could happen? <laughs> Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. We travel forward now to April 1979. Time Express aired on CBS in this month. With only four episodes, next to Highcliff Manor, this may be the shortest-run series mentioned on Forgotten TV. 
The series was created by Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, who had both previously been involved in the creation of Charlie's Angels and were the main writers on the Logan's Run TV series. The Time Express was a train run by the mysterious, unnamed head of the line. The Time Express is able to travel through time and space to any destination in the past. But Time Express was more fantasy than science fiction. It seemed to operate outside the normal boundaries of reality, and no attempt was really made to explain its operation. In fact, it was more like a modern ghost train, a 20th century Pullman style, filled with a dead crew to operate it after their own train, the Allegheny Flyer, crashed into a river 100 years earlier, as the engineer and conductor were sure to point out in three of the four episodes. Two passengers were chosen for each trip by the head of the line, based on who had the greatest need to relive a particular moment from their past. It always left from Gate Y, Track 13, and had its own ticket window at Special Services, manned by ticket agent Woodrow Parfrey, dressed as a 19th century clerk who would close his window as soon as the two passengers showed their tickets they had received in the mail. On board, host and hostess Jason and Margaret Winters, played by Vincent Price and Coral Brown, supervised each passenger's trip as they moved through the misty corridors of time. William Phipps was the engineer, and James Reynolds was the conductor. Time Express, Episode 1, Garbage Man slash Doctor's Wife, aired April 26, 1979, with James MacArthur, Jerry Stiller, his wife Ann Mira, and John Delancey. I can die? Two people with an urgent need to return to the past. Once we get underway, there is no turning back. Sister, you just have to believe me. I can't explain the time change or how I got here. I don't even understand it myself. Get in, garbage man. In the premiere episode, the Time Express takes on board seemingly successful businessman Edward Chernoff, played by Jerry Stiller. Mr. Chernoff's present success stems from his finding and keeping $2 million in the trash when he was working as a garbage man. He seeks to return to Cleveland, 1969, to pursue the idea of turning in the money instead of secretly keeping it. This draws some unwanted attention from shady characters, and his wife may have other ideas in mind. Dr. Mark Tolan seeks to return to St. Louis, 1967, to find living relatives to give his dying wife a bone marrow transplant. It turns out she is adopted, and the adoption records were destroyed in a fire and Dr. Tolan wants to return to before the fire to obtain these records to save his wife's life. Of course, it turns out not everything goes his way, and sometimes you have to have faith that people will do the right thing. Episode 2, The Copywriter slash The Figure Skater, airing May 3, 1979, with Richard Mazur, Morgan Fairchild, Terry Nunn from Berlin, Lee Merriweather, and Lyle Wagner. On Time Express, a man pursues an impossible dream. A woman pursues an improbable love. Two people with an urgent need to return to the past. 
So tell me, are you a skilled and experienced lover? What? How did it ever happen? I don't know. Paul is a man, and I'm a woman. Or didn't he bother to mention that? Will the past change their lives, do you think? If they're lucky, Maggie. Richard Mazur is Sam Loring, a socially inept, klutzy advertising copywriter seeking to return to Paris, 1978, to relive his meeting with beautiful model Michelle, played by Morgan Fairchild, who he stands up by mistake. He goes to great lengths to impress her this time around, trying to be a smooth ladies' man. But is that what she was looking for? Also, Terry Nunn is Jill Martin, a figure skater looking to return to 1977 Montreal to repair her broken romantic rendezvous that was interfered with by Vanessa, played by Lee Merriweather. Terry Nunn really did some ice skating in this episode. She was actually once a competitive figure skater who competed for four years until making the life decision to pursue acting and later a music career. Episode 3 Rodeo slash Cop, airing May 10th, 1979, with Robert Hooks, Vic Tabak, character actor Lucille Benson makes an appearance, and special guest star John Beck. Yes, our Dr. Perry from The Time Machine shows up in this one. A cowboy risks his future. Are you sure, Roy? I need the money. A detective risks his life. Two people with an urgent need to return to the past. And we get off where the ticket says we get off. At the exact place, at the exact time. You ain't my Pondemore and I hate you! Hold it right there. Who is it? What do you want? The rest of the diamonds? The doctors warned you. They said it was just too dangerous. There they go. Well, he make it. John Beck is Roy Culper, a single father and rodeo rider, seeking to return to a day in 1977 when he was injured riding a horse, creating an unstable living situation for his young daughter played by Kyle Richards, who played Alicia, adopted daughter of Grace and Isaiah Edwards, on 19 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. Robert Hooks is L.A. detective John Slocum, who got shot in the arrest of a suspected diamond thief in 1973. But was the suspect really guilty? He'll find out on his trip on the Time Express. Episode 4, The Boxer Slash Death airing May 17, 1979, with Paul Sylvan, Jamie Lynn Bauer, and Steve Canale. Three people with an urgent need to return to the past. Once we get underway, there is no turning back. They said that you go down in the pit, you stay alive! A man came into the restaurant, he was following me. Who is he? A boxer seeks to return to New York 1969 to relive a heavyweight championship fight he was forced to throw. But what will happen when he goes back to win that fight? Also, a man returns to 1976 when his girlfriend was killed in a plane crash after she claimed she was being stalked. But when he goes back to keep her from getting on the plane, he finds the story is more complicated than he originally thought. Time Express is a pretty obscure show. Prior to researching this podcast, I actually don't think I'd ever heard of it, completely missing its extremely short run in 1979. Yes, this was sort of Fantasy Island meets Super Train, which was airing concurrently over on NBC. Another anthology-style series following the lives of guest stars each week. It seemed to be a low-effort, 
low-budget show that could use existing sets, stock footage, a fog machine, and a train model to showcase these little personal time travel stories. The first half of each episode was filled with Jason and Margaret reviewing each passenger's original timeline, which the home viewer saw materialize through the foggy windows of the Time Express. Then the segments would commence where the passenger would go back to relive the needed moment in their lives. A neat idea with some potential, but the execution of the episodes left a lot to be desired. I'm being kind, it was actually terrible. No effort was made to show the train actually stopping at any of the destinations or the passengers disembarking. Scene transitions were usually fade-outs, seen through the foggy train window. And the results of the time travel were sometimes unclear and didn't make sense. The mechanics of the time travel seemed inconsistent from story to story. Were the passengers really changing events in their past, or were they seeing what could have been? In episode 3, the cop goes back and catches his partner being a thief, yet when they get back to the present, it seemed this didn't really happen and his partner did not seem to have memory of these events. Sometimes so much time was spent with Jason and Maggie reviewing the original timeline, the segment when the passenger actually goes back was shorter and the results of the trip seem anticlimactic. Certainly, the best parts of Time Express was the classy banter between distinguished Vincent Price and Coral Brown, which gave the show some distinction, but simply wasn't enough to avoid the dreaded network cancellation. Time Express has never been released to any form of home video or digital streaming. Anything out there online is from original home video recordings. Vincent Price needs little introduction. A longtime actor for decades prior to this show, he had a distinctive voice and tended to appear in a lot of horror films. After Time Express, he narrated the Tim Burton short film Vincent in 1982, as well as the sinister monologue on Michael Jackson's Thriller. In fact, he did quite a bit of voice work in the 80s and appeared as the inventor in 1990's Edward Scissorhands before his death in 1993. Coral Brown was Price's real-life wife at the time. They had married in 1974. She was Australian and had an extensive background in live theater. After Time Express, she appeared in five additional productions, including voiceovers for Xanadu and a supporting role in Eleanor, First Lady of the World, with Gene Stapleton. Coral Brown died in 1991. And who knows, somewhere in the multiverse, Vincent and Coral may be out there hosting passenger journeys through time. And that's all I could find on time travel television of the 1970s. Transporting you back to the present for now. System sequenced. Positive. Time normal mode. That certainly isn't the final word on time travel in the forgotten TV era, though. We've just gotten started. H.G. Wells gave screenwriters endless fodder for the imagination over the decades, and Wells, as a character, even makes appearances again and again on television, whether it was on Lois and Clark, Doctor Who, Time After Time, the 2017 series, or the current Legends of Tomorrow. Next year on Forgotten TV, we will take a look at time travel television of the 1980s. There might even be enough content for a two-part episode there. I just need some time to produce it. Meanwhile, 
I feel a rewatch of 1979's Time After Time is in order. Forgotten TV Memorial Robert Mandin, the veteran television actor who likely is best remembered as Chester Tate from the ABC daytime serial spoof Soap, has died. He was 86. He died April 29th after a long illness, but it was only recently reported. A longtime TV actor, he's recognizable from his many roles on Private Benjamin, Three's a Crowd, The Love Boat, Santa Barbara, and many more. Kent McRae, longtime producer of such shows as Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, Father Murphy, and Highway to Heaven, has died. He started as an associate producer with Bob Hope during the 1950s, traveling the world and filming specials during Hope's USO tours. McRae met Michael Landon in 1962 on the set of Bonanza. This began a decades-long working relationship that spanned three TV series as well as TV movies. Next to Landon, McRae is reported to have been the other driving creative force behind Little House on the Prairie. Margot Kidder, whose name is almost as synonymous with 1978's Superman the Movie, as was Christopher Reeve, has died at age 69. Kidder was Lois Lane in those 70s and 80s Superman films, and she also starred in 1979's The Amityville Horror, as well as had over 20 appearances on 70s and 80s TV, including the series Nichols from 1971 and Shell Game from 1987. Margot Kidder became later known for her advocacy of mental health issues as well as outspokenness about her own struggles. She was also very kind and personable to many adoring fans at conventions in recent years. Next time on Forgotten TV... It's the 1988 ABC series Probe with Parker Stevenson and Ashley Crow. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with ABC, NBC, CBS, 20th Century Fox Television, Irwin Allen Productions, Sun Classic Pictures, Warner Brothers Television, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. Ready? Moonraker 79, Talker 1, The Soundtracks, Sci-Fi Horror Time, Shatner Method, BJ's Records and Nostalgia, Corey Bishop, 
Fred Flicks, Videoholic 50s, 60s, 70s, Adrienne Quinlan, Longboard Jimbo, 78 Time Machine, Gilmore Box, Apotheon SAK, Robert C. 2009, Video Detective, HRTV Fan 2, DMC 4708, Videoholic Ultimate, EWJXN, as well as the Classic Sci-Fi Movies blog, the Horror Cult Films website, and the Sound of Vincent Price blog. Links can be found in the show notes. Forgotten TV can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or any podcast app, or you can ask Alexa to play it for you. A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. Now that the studio is up and running, I have at least nine more episodes of Forgotten TV coming this year, and I'm going to be appearing on some other podcasts as well. All appearances will be posted to the Forgotten TV Facebook page and Twitter, so if you aren't already following those, go ahead and like or follow to keep up with all podcast appearances. Thanks for indulging me on this episode's intro, and my apologies to Mario and Marlon. If you like the show, please rate the show by giving it a star rating on iTunes or Stitcher. That goes a long way to promote the show to new listeners. And if you shop online, I wouldn't mind if you click through to Amazon on any of the links in the show notes or website. Those extra few dollars a month are used to obtain DVDs and other equipment needed to produce the show. And links to all social media and content can be found at Forgotten.tv. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.